Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, and thanks for joining another episode of Brussels Bytes. Before I introduce today's guest, I just want to take a step back and say a warm thank you to all of our listeners in the past six months. One of our recent episodes passed the mark of 10,000 listens on SoundCloud, which means a lot for me, and it also means a lot for our fantastic communications team here at the Martin Center. I hope that it also means that more and more people are getting engaged and interested in technology and European policies. As I like to say, this podcast is about politics, but also about our society, a society which is at a critical juncture. Think about it. Social media, disinformation, artificial intelligence, facial recognition, surveillance. The list is growing. Where do we stand on these issues? Where are they taking us? And what is their impact on our communities? Questions like this can provoke you, they can excite you, but they can also make you anxious. This is why national governments, civil society, the European Union, media, and big technological companies have an important responsibility in handling these challenges and making sure that Europe remains the best place you can live, the best place you can work and prosper. I'm extremely grateful that our today's guest is a professional who can hopefully address these big, big questions and address these anxieties. Today we're joined by John Frank, who is in charge of the European team of Microsoft here in Brussels. John Frank is Vice President, EU Government Affairs in Brussels. He was previously Vice President, Deputy General Counsel and Chief of Staff at Microsoft Corporation in Redmond, Washington. From 1996 to 2002, John Frank led Microsoft's legal and corporate affairs group for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, focusing on issues such as privacy, security, and consumer protection. Prior to joining Microsoft, John Frank was an attorney in San Francisco. John, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. John. You've been engaged in leading positions at Microsoft, both in Europe and in the USA. What are the notable differences in handling government affairs across the Atlantic and here in Europe, here in Brussels? Well, first, let's say I, you know, I've been living in Brussels for four years now, and I very much enjoy it. Um, the, the positive side of uh, government affairs in Brussels is that it, it is very collegial here. Um, we have political parties. Um, and yet the political parties generally work together across coalitions to, to work on important issues. Uh, and I think sometimes in Washington, D.C., we, we clearly see a partisan divide, um, sort of blue-red Republican-Democrat. Um, and so I think that um, you know, that, that's, that's an important difference. Uh, another important difference is because um, in the United States Congress, it has the right to initiate legislation, each member, uh, it's very easy for, for measures to come forward. Uh, far fewer things actually get passed. 
Um, where here in Brussels, once a measure comes out from the commission, it almost always gets completed. Mm. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the work of preparing for what comes out becomes the critical factor here. Um, but overall, um, you know, many of the same values and principles um, in, in public policy are, are consistent across the groups. Mm. Um, and, you know, the very talented people, both in Washington and Brussels, working on public policy. And focusing on, on, on the states as, as a little, little warm-up to our conversation, do you think that mm, tech issues are growing in, in prominence? Now we have the, the presidential election upcoming in, in 2020, and we've seen even some of the presidential candidates taking specific positions on big tech issues. Do you think that these questions are important for the electorate in the states? There's no doubt that technology is transforming our lives and our economy. Uh, the technology sector of the United States economy is growing from 5% to 10% of the national economy uh, over a 15-year period. Um, so just the economic impact, uh, economic growth uh, is significant. Uh, and in this new era of data science and artificial intelligence and cloud computing, we're seeing some profound um, challenges for, for how technology will affect our lives and our businesses. And so I think that there are important issues that are being discussed, and um, including, you know, how will this affect our democratic processes? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I just mentioned that the U.S. elections, but recently we, in Europe we, we had European Parliament elections. And one of the best, big focuses of the previous commission and the pledges for the upcoming von der Leyen commission is the question of artificial intelligence, the question on developing a rigorous ethical framework for artificial intelligence and maybe even specific legislation on, on AI. Do you think that ethics is enough when we talk about AI or we should even go beyond that? Well, I, I, I believe that ethics are essential as a foundation uh, first step. And until you kind of think through some of the ethical issues, uh, I think it becomes very tough to try to come up with legislative solutions that, that address problems. Now, having said that, artificial intelligence is, is very broad. It'll touch every part of the economy uh, and every part of our lives. And so trying to come up with legislative proposals that are going to address every issue in a horizontal way Mm. is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. There are some foundational things that are important, but I do think it will be important to be willing to say, look, let's take some specific scenarios where there are concerns and and try to address those concerns in a a very um, thoughtful manner. And I think ethics is the foundation for how we're going to deal with that, because ultimately, we want our society to reflect our values. Mm. And society is not going to accept technology or or social change that doesn't reflect our social values. And here comes the, <clears throat> the big question. How do we design technology-neutral legislation and also make sure that we don't hamper innovation, we don't put Europe in a disadvantage, and we, we don't stifle our businesses? How do we design this, this legislation? Right. I think the important part to get right is recognizing that the most important economic investment we can make these days is our people. We need education. We need continuing education. Um, 
we're, you know, we can we can dream of the workforce of the future, but we have a workforce today of very talented people that we need to continue lifelong learning and, and growth uh, because jobs are evolving and you know to, to capture the the positive aspects of artificial intelligence data science um, we need people who can pivot and grow and and learn uh, one of our one of our customers uh, came and spoke here in Brussels a few weeks ago Otokumpo it's a Finnish stainless steel manufacturer and they were talking about the, the challenges they have of finding people to do cybersecurity in their company. Now, they've gone through this digital transformation where they've taken their factories and installed lots of digital sensors, and, and they've really dramatically refined and improved how they manufacture stainless steel. They're the largest manufacturer of stainless steel in the world. But what they said is they, it's easier to take a metallurgist and teach them more about data science or cybersecurity than it is to take somebody without any domain expertise and teach them how to apply their, their skill set to this, this era of metallurgy. So I think that, you know, that, that is the challenge for every business uh, and every organization, training people and cross-training them to expand, to um, take advantage of the new um, uh, the new opportunities. And of course, in our university and 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 high school curriculums, including more quantitative skills. We're, we're, we live in a quantitative world, and so people need to embrace, um, you know, learning more about how, what data science can do. Absolutely. I want to dig deeper a bit on, on, on policy issues and especially on, on um, regulating facial recognition. Your company has positioned itself as an advocate for increased government regulation in specific sectors, a notion that is not shared by all of the big tech companies. What's the logic behind Microsoft's stance and on the call for increased government regulation? We've been very thoughtful about how our artificial intelligence technologies will be deployed. Um, we've been working in artificial intelligence with Microsoft Research for for decades, um, and we're now seeing facial recognition technology kind of reach both a, an improvement in accuracy, but but more a dramatic decline in cost to deploy it. And so, um, it's it's a easily available technology today, and yet we're concerned that if it's misapplied, um, it can do harmful things. And it can destroy consumer trust in technologies. Um, there clearly are some very important use cases where facial recognition technology um, can make the world a safer, better place. Um, but we also see scenarios where the industry hasn't been responsible enough about ensuring that technologies are used appropriately. The GDPR provides a very good foundation and the police directive, um, law enforcement directive, um, here in Europe for regulating this. Um, and that's, that's a very important start. Um, but we need to build on that to make sure that we've, you know, the GDPR, you know, the, these, these statutes, they're important, but they can't answer every question. So we need, we believe there's more to be done to provide clear guidelines or requirements about how police forces should use facial recognition technology. 
um, and how they should review it. Um, similarly, the consumer or the commercial uses with consumers for facial recognition technology, they need to be thought through very carefully. Uh, when I go to the pharmacy and buy some cough syrup, I open up the package and there's disclosure forms telling me you know, what the appropriate way to use the medication is and the limitations and you know, what, how not to use it. Um, facial recognition technology deserves the same thing. Um, people need to understand it's, it's, not, it's not an exact match, right? It's a suggested, this is a probable match. Uh, and that probability may be higher or lower depending on the circumstances. But here comes the here comes the challenge. There's been voices in the in the U.S., for example, that for the time being there should be a blanket ban on facial recognition technology. There are certain privacy groups or even some some media outlets which advocate that until we get it right, we should ban facial recognition technology. If I'm not mistaken, in in, um, in California, I think the police force is not allowed to use, use facial recognition. So what's the right approach here? Well, I don't think it's a terrible thing to say you're going to pause some, Apple, you know, some deployments until you can get it right. I mean, I think well, you, don't, I mean, you don't want to hold back technology, but, but in those special circumstances where you see a particular, uh, particular harm that you can identify, I think it's fine to say, look, let's get this right before we proceed. Um, and so... It is the exception, but I, I, I don't see that much of a problem of, of saying we're going to pause this for a while mm -hmm. un, until we can work through some of the issues. I mean, there is a deep concern among, um, among many in the United States that facial recognition technology is less accurate for uh, people with darker skin than lighter skin. Potential biases ingrained right. in the technology. And especially when it comes to policing, um, you know, it's a sensitive case, and, and we don't want to have a, um, technologies deployed that are going to lead to um, inappropriate, um, you know, police action mm -hmm. against um, minority populations. The thing which really struck a chord with me was that in late 2018, Microsoft, your company, launched its six principles to guide Microsoft's facial recognition work, and it's one of the very first companies to actually uh, speak freely and openly about, the, about this issue. These six principles for, for Microsoft when it comes to facial recognition, among them are fairness, accountability, non-discrimination, and the last one is lawful surveillance, which aims to safeguard democratic freedoms. Now, my question to you is, where do we draw the line on what constitutes lawful surveillance and not? Does the company has its own, have its own standards and thresholds, or it relies on national legal systems and understanding of what is actually lawful? Well, I think that that we have principles that we are a floor for where we will use our technology, um, and I think you know we hope that national standards will be at least at that level. I think I believe in Europe they are. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Europe, European, again, the directives and, and some of the work that's been done um, on closed-circuit television surveillance, for example, um, have provided a good foundation and the recognition that it's a matter of fundamental right uh, that's, that's being implicated 
leads to conclusions under European law that provide good protections. Um, there was, I think, a significant court case. Uh, it's not a final ruling. It can still be appealed. But the South Wales police, uh, I believe in September, uh, in, in a UK court, um, where the court went through and analyzed very carefully, essentially, the European legislative framework that had been adopted by the UK, as well as the guidance that had been offered um, by, by the regulators and guidelines by the police department to ensure that this was properly used. And I think that's a, a very good starting point to extract out from that what are the best practices or requirements for any police department across Europe who wants to deploy this, that here's a legal framework for you to follow. Um, and so I think that there is, there's a good foundation in Europe. Um, the parts of the world, there's not a good foundation. Exactly. Right? And, and the idea that, um, not, I don't think any of us want to live in a world where cameras can monitor us everywhere we go and anybody can track, you know, where we've been that day. Um, you know, I think some sense of individual privacy and, uh, in society is uh, a very important part of who we are. Uh, and so we will not license our technology um, you know, for surveillance in, in many countries around the world. We, we turn down business mm -hmm. um, in, in countries where we fear that it will be used for repression or, or broad surveillance. We, we mentioned numerous times police forces and engagement with, um, with the security, security services. A couple of weeks ago, I recently finished Tools and Weapons, the, the book by your, by your president, Brad Smith, and, and Carol Brown. One of the recurring themes in the book, which made an impression for me, and in different chapters, is Microsoft's numerous clashes with governments and legal enforcement on sharing of personal information or device information. Here, I think I, I quote out of on the top of my head, head, but I think Microsoft receives something in the region of 50,000 requests or subpoenas for exchange of information from 75 countries globally. As, as a company, exactly how, how do you draw the line on safeguarding privacy and user rights and actually being able to cooperate with, with police forces? Have you had similar experiences in, in the company? Which were the toughest battles for you? When I, in my previous role, I, I, uh, one of the teams that was part of my group was the law enforcement national security team, and, and we worked um, to, to process these requests from law enforcement. And keeping citizens safe is an incredibly important function of government. There's no doubt about it. And so um, the, the work that police uh, do is, is essential to, to our society. But our role is not to service the police, we're there to serve our customers. And, and so when we receive orders or requests, um, we've got very clear policies that we publish about um, the kind of information we can provide. And, and a lot of, you know, 95% of the requests we receive is simple account information. Um, and so, um, you know, who's behind, um, you know, the account uh, at, with a Hotmail address, mm -hmm. for example, uh, and it's simple registration information. That's that's most of, of the requests. About five percent of the requests, though, are for content, and in that we you know carefully scrutinize to ensure that the content you know the request is lawful, um, 
you know, by its terms, and that um, we're very thoughtful and make sure it's not overbroad, and we will provide that information in a very secure way to the police um, or courts when we get those orders. Um, we have been willing to sue the United States government over issues. Um, when the Snowden disclosures occurred, um, I was engaged in discussions with the FBI about wanting to, what we believe, set the record straight about the number of accounts involved um, because the press accounts with the limited information they, they had available uh, gave the impression that many more accounts were subject to, to lawful, lawful orders. Um, and so we did sue the United States government in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, um, asserting our First Amendment right to free speech to be able to disclose publicly the broad number of accounts that we'd received. Uh, that case was eventually successfully settled. Uh, President Obama announced the settlement in a, in a speech several months later uh, and enabled us to provide much more detailed information in our transparency reports that are on the web about the kinds of national security orders we receive and the number of accounts affected. Um, we've also, um, you know, a case that um, I initiated at Microsoft involved uh, a warrant we received from a New York court for an email account that was stored in our Dublin, Ireland data center. And when we looked at the statute, uh, our determination was that the U.S. law did not apply extraterritorially. Mm -hmm. um, that case eventually went to the Supreme Court. Um, we, the case was never ruled on because Congress stepped up and adopted what's called the Cloud Act, um, which did two things. It clarified from Congress's point of view that the extraterritorial reach of the United States was confirmed, but that other governments could negotiate with the United States executive agreements that would set the terms by which the United States could access data about their citizens. All on ad hoc, case-by-case -case basis? Well, setting a legal framework. Mm -hmm. And so the European Commission has, with the Council's um, mandate begun negotiations of a an executive agreement between the European Union and the United States. It's an incredibly important agreement, and it's it's really important that it protects the fundamental rights and freedoms of Europeans. Talking about this cooperation with with governments, right now in Europe we have an interesting example. The European Commission proposed legislation. Um, legislating how a law enforcement authority in one country can directly approach an internet service provider for data which is stored in another country. So this is something which is currently occupying the minds of lawmakers in Europe as well. And right now I think the, it's, it's, uh, it's going in the pipeline in the European Parliament and it's a report on e-evidence. What do you deem is important when we talk about this information exchange in Europe and how does Microsoft approach the issue here in Brussels? We've been broadly supportive of an e-evidence um, legislative effort. Um, we think it is important to be able to find ways that law enforcement can obtain 
the data it needs within an appropriate legal framework. Um, and so the commission's proposal on e-evidence did some very important things. It, it, most importantly, it said um, if a French court wants information about something that happened in France but the data happens to be stored in Ireland, it has a right to get it. And that's, that's I think, clarifying and does make a lot of sense. Um, but it also sets up certain protections. And so a court in one country can't get from a service provider like Microsoft uh, data about another government. Um, or if it's an organizational customer, um, that generally notices have to be given. We want, this, we want a system that works for police, but also works for our customers, including our government customers and our commercial customers uh, and our individual customers. So that's, that's the key challenge in making this work. Um, we're less, I mean, I'll give you an honest opinion, I don't think the council's position um, is very helpful. Uh, I think it, you know, it, they stripped away many of the protections that the commission had proposed. Um, we're hopeful that the parliament position will restore those protections and, and perhaps improve uh, on where the commission was. But this is a, this is a complicated process. Um, it is important uh, that we advance this legislation. Um, and I hope that people will pay attention to it because even though it may be a little complicated, it's fundamentally important to how we're going to live in a world of, of cloud computing. 2019 was was especially in Brussels because of the European Parliament elections, and there was numerous concerns for for disinformation, for potential cyber attacks, for potential hacking of of, of our election. What's 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 your take? Um, was Microsoft under under heavy fire before before the elections when it comes to cybersecurity? Um, I think we're we're living in a world where there is. We just have to recognize that nation states are going to use cyberspace mm -hmm. to advance their state goals in ways that many of us would find inappropriate. Uh, and the potential of disinformation has always been part of the political process. Uh, there's the you know old American joke: How can you tell politicians lying? Is that they're moving their lips? Uh, now they might say they're moving their thumbs, but. Um, you know, I think that there's an expectation that in the rough and tumble of political discussion, um, truth may not always be the, the winner. But it gets more complicated when we start living in a world where there is the, there is the potential for foreign interference. And, and also when we recognize that the online world and social media uh, has an accelerating effect and an amplifying effect where you can essentially bring your own orchestra to uh, to your message. To tailor-made audiences, by the way. Right. Very specific right. audiences. So it is a major challenge. Um, we've worked in this last election cycle to, to help political parties, uh, think tanks, candidates, uh, make sure that they keep their election, you know, they keep their email uh, and their documents secure from, from hacking and doxing. Um, we've also been working on technologies that will enable people to verify that their vote was counted as, as they cast it and that the total number of votes from an mm. overall system can be verified.
Um, we call that election guard. Um, we've also um, been fairly vocal in calling out um, instances where we see foreign interference or foreign nation state attacks on um, on our customers. And so we've notified over 10,000 customers uh, this past year that a foreign government was targeting their account. Um, so I think that that's, that's uh, a significant problem. We believe that we need to find international solutions. Um, the Paris call for trust and mm -hmm. stability in cyberspace is a very important step, we believe. We need to work together because government can't solve this problem by itself. Industry can't solve this problem by itself. You know, it's a multi-stakeholder approach that is going to ultimately um, get solutions that, that can help address some of these problems. And are partners in the industry answering your call? Do you find instances of positive cooperation across the, the, the industry? We do find uh, interest because you know, we tend to find industries are, are aligned, and so you know the chief information security officers uh, of, of of financial services institutions they talk to each other, but they don't necessarily talk to um, you know the telecommunications companies and they don't, or the IT companies over here, and 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 so we open up the possibilities of collaborating on on developing better solutions when we work across our our kind of silos, and and uh, you know. The last uh, month or so, uh, I've been in cybersecurity roundtables on this um, in Riga, in Helsinki, um, Madrid, um, and people are people are excited to get to go try to do something that is going to make a difference because we need we need to create the world we want to live in, and it, you know this isn't a problem that we can just legislate ourselves out of. Um, it does, you know, we need to make our products more secure. We need to make our end-to-end -end experiences more secure. Um, and we need to, to find ways to address cyber criminality in a more effective way. And we need to put constraints on how governments uh, conduct malign activities online. Absolutely. In closing, just a final question, because for me and for many people in Brussels, when, when they hear the, the, the name Microsoft, it rings the bell of the landmark case in EU competition law history in the early 2000s. From the distance of time, how important was the Microsoft Corp versus Commission case for the company, and how important was it for its future operations in Europe? I spent several years working on that case, or those cases, um, and you know, it was a difficult time for, for the company. Um, we were slow to engage or to hear the message that, that was coming to us about um, some of our business practices that, that people considered unfair. Um, and I think regardless of the, you know, setting aside the particular facts of the case, it's the broader message that had the bigger impact on us, right? It was that we need to make sure that we're listening to people in our industry, as well as in government and others, and be willing to take the feedback. Um, you know, you could say we didn't get it, and we eventually figured out we needed to get it. Um, and I think that's, that's important. And, and as a company, the transitions that have taken place to 
Uh, now, you know, we're, we're one of the leading open source software companies in the world. Uh, we contribute more to uh, open source projects than, than almost any other company. Um, and you know, with GitHub, we're, we're trying to create uh, a great place for open source software projects to be carried out. Um, so we've, we've transformed who we are as a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look back at, at time, I mean, those competition cases were a pivotal moment where that changed the course of our company. What about competition policy in, in, in 2020, in the upcoming decade? Many people are, many people are getting anxious and they're criticizing um, regulators that competition procedures take a very long time. Sometimes it's difficult to prove harm on users and that even, even if there's a fine to be imposed on a company, regardless which company, these fines are actually small given their overall turnover, given their, their revenues, and that competition policy is not really effective. Maybe you're not the best person to ask you this question, but how do you see competition policy in the next decade? I think it's... Uh, President-designate von der Leyen is... I think it's a, a important innovation. We'll see how it works, but it's a, it's, it's a really interesting experiment by having uh, executive uh, uh, vice president with portfolios both for the digital and for competition. And um, Vice President Vestager can have the option of looking at is competition enforcement the right way here or, or is a regulatory approach the right way? And without being so concerned about you know which silo, um, you know which part of the commission it might move to, so I think it's it's a positive to to look at this because there are cases where enforcement is appropriate, and yet um, the challenge is how do you regulate a fast-moving industry in ways that have a sustained impact. On, on competitiveness. Um, and so I think that looking at the enforcement and regulation continuum is a very healthy development. John, thank you very much. John Frank, Vice President of EU Government Affairs here in Brussels. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. 